So what a beautiful uh, period of time it is, right? Expectation, hope, all of these incredible words. Peace, light, life, all of these gifts that come together. It's a beautiful season, Advent. The remembering of the fact that God sent his son into the world. A fulfillment of hundreds of prophecies. In Jesus' first coming, I think I've read somewhere that he fulfilled over 300 and some odd prophecies, some of which that were written hundreds of years before, specifically speaking of uh, just even his own birth, that, hey, the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will give birth to a child. And, and then you have all these other things about how the government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Prince of Peace and, and of his kingdom. And I will give him the throne of his, uh, of, of his father David and he will rule forever and ever. I mean, it's just so many incredible longing expectations. Sometimes I think we lose the heart of it, especially... Um, from the Israelites' perspective of all of the suffering that they went through and all of the difficulties. I know I'm growing up in a generation in the United States of America, like I'm super blessed, like incredibly blessed in so many different ways that I don't know if I really feel, like I need God, the Holy Spirit, I need the Holy Spirit to really fall on me, to give me that sort of, I need you, Lord, more than anything. My heart is expecting the coming of a Savior. I need you. And he needs to leverage us in that arena, especially when we have such prosperity. And this season is all about that. An infant being born, signifying peace and light and joy and so many other things wrapped up. All of the songs that we sing. Uh, It's a glorious season of time. And then this man, this child grows up and lives this life for 33 years. Actually, most of his life is pretty much spent in obscurity. There's not a whole lot there. I mean, you can watch some stuff on the History Channel, you know, in search of historic Jesus. A lot of times I watch some of that because it's kind of, I think some of it's kind of comedic, actually. I can't, I can't, I can't look away. I know I should, that I shouldn't watch it or something. I'm like, this, this can't be right. But part of it, I kind of watch it to see just what it says. Like, that doesn't, that doesn't jive with the scriptures or whatever. That just can't be that way. But there's just not a whole lot there. And then when he's about 30 years old, he bursts onto a scene. Starts out with a baptism, actually. And his cousin, John, recognizing the fact that he was the one who was called out. And he begins a three-and-a-half-year public ministry traveling around as an evangelist, doing all kinds of things. And God appointed him uh, a season of time to do that uh, until, until the time that he was brought to Calvary, to Golgotha, when he was uh, crucified and then buried, and then we believe to be rose again the third day. And do you remember, there were several times near the end of his ministry where uh, some of the Pharisees were trying to test him, and uh, they came up to him and they're like, I know, I, I got a good one. Let's actually see what he thinks is the greatest commandment. Let's see if he can get this one right. I don't know if he's going to get this one. What, what do you think is the greatest commandment? One of them, a lawyer, this is out of Matthew 22, asked Jesus a question to test him. Let's see, let's just test him. And you know, it's so funny because we, we, we live on this side of the scriptures, but remember when he was even just a child and they went over to Jerusalem and he stayed in the temple and his parents lost him and, uh, for a couple of days and he was there and even at that young age, the, the teachers of the law in the temple were like, man, this kid is incredible. This kid is incredible, and he's just, just filled with wisdom even at a young age, and yet here they are still trying to test him. Hey, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Remember, they're always trying to hang him up on something. 
you know, trying to get some way of accusing him. In fact, they tried to use some of those accusations when they brought him before uh, Pontius Pilate and before the Sanhedrin um, to try and break him out. Like, he's worthy of death. He's worthy of death because he said this. Um, So here they are trying to test him. And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now remember, what are they attempting to do? They're attempting to test him with respect to the law. And then he says this, On these two commandments depends all of the law and the prophets. So he wraps it all up. He just tells them the whole thing. All of your laws, all of the prophetic teachings, everything are summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, he throws one back at him right after this. I don't have time to go into it, but I love it. And it's one that you and I can actually answer now. And where he actually says, hey, if David called the Messiah Lord, but he's also his son, how does that work? How does that work? You tell me, you tell me that, and they couldn't answer it. By the way, you and I, we should be able to answer that one, because that's what Christmas is all about. He is the son of David, and he is also David's Lord. Kind of cool stuff there. Just throwing out. And by the way, right after that, it says in the, in the book of Matthew, they stopped trying to test him. Because he stumped them. He like one-upped them. He did the stump the chump thing, you know, and he's like, yeah, but you cannot do that. You can't do that with Jesus. I still try and do it with Jesus sometimes, by the way, and it doesn't work, if you know what I'm talking about. If you have experience, you know what I'm saying. All right, so all of the law and the prophets are summed up. So that's really, that's all I'm really going to talk about. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. In fact, when we get together every week, really, that's all we're really doing. We're we're encouraging one another in this journey of learning to love God more and learning to love one another more. And uh, so we have this vertical and we have a horizontal stuff going on. So now, Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11, right? Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. I love this passage. Titus is uh, is a letter that Paul wrote to, to a young man who's a pastor, and he's encouraging him in some things. And uh, so he, he's going to, in this scripture passage, kind of sums up another, it's, it's just an amazing truth, sums up another amazing thing about Jesus. And we're going to see this right here. So Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. Titus, I want to remind you, remember the four thing, that's like a B4. I want to remind you again of something that you've already known, and this is something that most of you already know, okay? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Stop right there just for a second. That is Christmas. That is Christmas. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, and instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, those that are zealous for good deeds. That's an incredible passage. It's really incredible. I mean, there's so much in this passage 
to be looked at. Uh, it's one of those scripture verses that you can look at and you can chew on and you can meditate on it and think about it and wonder over it and, and ask God, Lord, what in the world, what is going on here and how does this relate to me? And so what I'm going to try and do is go through a couple of, this, of these verses and just kind of look at them with respect to, and I've already told you, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, look at Jesus came, and he had a very specific purpose. And, and in this particular section of, of Scripture, in Titus chapter 2, it says, for the grace of God has appeared. Now, what I'm going to say is that there's a lot more to grace than just unmerited favor. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever heard that definition? Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is uh, mercy is, is God not giving you what you deserve, and grace is giving you what you don't deserve. And so they kind of play together. You know, you got mercy on one side and grace on the other. By the way, that's totally true. All of that is true. And in, there are certain passages in the Scripture that grace totally means that God gives us stuff that we do not deserve. And he does that according to his mercy. That means that he gives us stuff because he's kind to us, even though we don't deserve it. And so that's totally grace. But then there's other areas where that definition doesn't make any sense whatsoever. For example, in the book of Acts, where the people are like, Lord, we're scared. We know that you need us to go forward into our community and talk to other people about what has happened to Jesus, that he has been raised from the dead, and that he is now seated uh, in heaven on high, and we need some power. And then it says that the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and there was abundant grace in the midst of their group, and they were empowered to go forward. And so I'm saying that there's certain aspects in the New Testament where grace is much more than God just God's unmerited favor, where he's up in heaven saying, I'm going to give you heaven even though you don't deserve it because he's not separated from us like that in all cases. And in certain cases, it actually, uh, his grace is actually synonymous with his presence, with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And in this case, in Titus, I think you have one of the most clear examples that his grace is much, much more than just something that he gives, like a business card. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just want to give you a business card. I just give you my grace. You know, it's the Lord Almighty, grace, here's your grace card. That's not it at all. It's so much more. It says that his grace actually manifested itself. Manifested into the world. Made itself known. Where it was not necessarily known in all of its fullness, maybe in part, now it's been wrapped up in all of its fullness. And so here you have it. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Well, hey, yo. We know where that is. That's Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So if you turn over to the book of John, or you guys know that there already, in the book of John, chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, and then the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh, and, and He dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. We saw it. We held it. We touched it. I like, I like in John, like 
He's always laying on Jesus when they're having dinners and stuff like that. I know they have reclining and stuff, but they were, he was always like right near him. Even at the Last Supper, he's like, you, can just, you feel like he's wanting to be close to the Lord. Like, who is it that's going to betray you? Is it me? Am I the one? No, it's the one who's going to dip his bread right after me. Watch this. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and they're having this conversation like, we beheld it. I witnessed. We saw it. We saw it. And, and uh, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. Now, in verses 17 and 18 in John chapter 1, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And uh, this, that's just an incredible truth. So what you have there in John's Gospel, and then Paul, through the Holy Spirit, and Titus is saying the same thing, that the law came through Moses, but grace manifested itself in all of its power, in all of its glory, in all of its might, through Jesus Christ. By the way, was there grace in the Old Testament? Was there grace? The answer is yes. It's there. You, get, you pick up the book and read it. It's all there. In fact, I love the story of Zerubbabel when they're looking at the pile of the rubble after the temple had been destroyed and the king was like, oh man, how is this ever going to get... How are we ever going to build a temple again to the Lord? How is this ever going to happen? There's just no way. We barely have homes to live in. And, the, and the, te- the temple was just burned. It was all burned rocks. And then God said, you guys know this passage, maybe not the context of it, but, the, but, the, but the, the message that the prophet brought was, not by might, not by the might of man, nor by the power of man, but by my spirit, declares the Lord, you will rebuild the temple. And when you put the final stone on that temple, you will shout, grace to it. That's, that's what God told them to do. Namely, you're not going to build the temple by your own power. I'm going to build the temple through you by my spirit. And so those were all just foretellings of the fact that Jesus has come to wrap it all up. And so the grace of God appears in Christ. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time But Jesus came manifesting, born of a virgin, into the world, lived a perfect life, died on that cross, was buried, was raised again, manifesting the power and grace of God. Now, grace can be defined in many different ways. I've kind of already spelled this out a little bit. Here's one definition. The free, unmerited, unexpected, I love that, the unexpected love of God. And by the way, I'm just telling you, like my picture of grace is like that every day. I mean, there are days when I wake up and I'm like, Lord, how are you going to surprise me by your grace today? And, and I mean, that's one of the things about following the Lord, following Christ and walking in his ways, that it never gets boring. Like, if your Christianity is boring, you're not, you're not on the threshold of understanding his grace, because he's always surprising us in those areas, sometimes in good ways, sometimes in bad ways. You know what I'm talking about? Like sometimes it's like, yeah, thank you for that. And other times it's like, yeah, thank you for that one. May I have another one, please? No. You know what I'm saying? Because his grace does sometimes, and you'll see this, can bring correction to us from time to time. And we begin to delight in that too because the fact is is that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. So if you're being disciplined, that's a good thing. 
if you're not being disciplined. That's not such a good thing. That means that you might not be one of his children. Just saying. That's what Hebrews actually talks about, all right? So, the free and unmerited, unexpected love of God and all the benefits, delights, and comforts which flow from it. It means that while we were yet sinners and enemies, we've been treated as heirs and sons. Not just treated, we are. We are. We're in it. When you walk in the grace of God, we're so much more. And it's not because of us, but because of Him. I love uh, the definition, the acronym, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. To the depth that we understand the grace of God, it will increase and bear fruit in our lives. This understanding is not a theological understanding of memorizing specific theological structural issues. It has everything to do with the fact that the grace of God has appeared and we need to relate with him. The grace of God is manifested most primarily, and he does this in other ways, but most, mostly through Jesus Christ. Hey, does this work in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by the way? Do you know what I'm talking about? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest no one should boast. So if I say that the grace of God is Jesus, you should be able, as a definition, you should be able to take that definition and put it in there. For by Jesus Christ, you have been saved through faith in him. And I'm saying, yeah, it works. It actually works in that particular verse. Uh, So the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. I'm back in Titus chapter 2, all right? What did the grace of God come to do? He came to instruct us. That's what Titus says. He's like, Titus, don't forget this, that the grace of God appeared. He's brought salvation to all men. And he's instructing us. He's teaching us. He's training us. He's educating us. He's nurturing us. God's grace is personified in Christ, not only as our deliverer, but also as our teacher, as our guide, as our counselor. In fact, the disciples were like, when he kept talking about, I'm going away, I'm going to be going away. And the disciples were like, what are you, what are you talking about? You can't leave us, man. You cannot leave us. You cannot leave us. And he actually says there, I'm going to send you another paraclete. I'm going to send you another comforter. I'm going to send you another one that's just like me and he's going to lead you into all of my truth and he will help to bring to your remembrance everything that I have taught you. And and I'm saying that that's the Holy Spirit, by the way, that that came in in his fullness at Pentecost, but even after Jesus' resurrection, he breathed upon them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And so we have the Trinity happening, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all manifesting the grace of the one God, the one true God, in magnificent ways in the world to his people. But in Titus, he's saying, look, at Jesus came to teach something. You want to know something amazing? That's actually another prophecy that was fulfilled. I think it's in Ezekiel where it actually says, and Jesus actually quoted from this, he said that God said, that all people will be taught by God. In other words, they're not going to have to go to a mediator. They're not going to have to go to a pastor. They're not going to have to go to a, uh, a priest or to uh, any particular type. He's saying God himself is going to come and become a teacher to each person individually. By the way, that doesn't diminish the, the beauty or the architecture 
or the roles and responsibilities that God has set up in his church as a body. There is a hierarchy, even as there's a hierarchy in family. But at the same time, Jesus is saying, I've come to instruct, and the way that I'm going to do this through the gospel, I'm going to be able to connect with each and every person individually. Think about the mystery of this. There were only a certain amount of people. Jesus didn't travel worldwide when he was on the earth. He didn't travel around the globe during his season of time. But the way that God has manifested the gospel, now he has the ability to do that and to relate in languages, beyond languages, and go worldwide with the truths of the gospel and connect with individuals in amazing ways. And so here in Titus, he's saying it again, the grace of God has appeared and he's come to instruct us in something. All right. Primarily, I'm going to sidebar here for a second, and that is primarily uh, to teach us the gospel primarily to teach us the gospel, that we need God, that we have sinned against a, a holy God, and that, that Jesus' death and resurrection, his sacrificial life, and then death on the cross, and his burying and raising from the dead the third day is necessary for us for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, Now, this passage is actually written to believers, saying like, Hey, look it. Now that you're in the faith, there's more to this. There's more to this than just saying, yo, I'm a Christian. I put on my Christian coat. I have my Christian tattoo. I'm wearing it. Doesn't that make me one? I mean, I have it on. Because, you know, sometimes I'm saying that, that we think that um, that's all the instruction that God has come to do. And that's not what the grace of God is. That's not the fullness of the gospel. Just, just saying that you're a believer and putting on Christianity every once in a while when it fits your uh, social genre for the moment. That's not Christianity at all. That's not grace. And we do that. We do that a lot. And so you see this in, in, the, in Titus. He's saying, look, at the grace of God gets you to the point where you get down on your knees and you confess your need of Jesus and the forgiveness of your sins, and then he continues to relate with us. He continues to teach us. He continues, the grace of God continues to lead us deeper and deeper and deeper into the life of Christ. This is what he was born to do. This is what he lives to do. This is what he's doing right now, interceding for us before the Father, instructing us. Have you heard his voice? Jesus said that... Um, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It's enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. Paul wrote about this in the book of Romans. What I'm singing the same song in multiple verses where he said that for the believer, we have been predestined for a purpose. And do you know what that purpose is? To look like Jesus. We're, going to be, we're becoming more and more like Christ. And that's not just, I put on Christianity when I raised my hand um, at, at, at the arena, and then I become like Christ after I die. It's, I'm beginning a relationship, and this relationship is changing me from the inside out, all right? Peter records that Jesus left us an example that we should follow in his steps. The Holy Spirit was sent to ensure that we love God and love others. I'm telling you, 
he actually secures the grace of God in our lives. Now, we have a lot of teachers in our life. You know what I'm talking about? We have lots of teachers. I brought this radio. I wanted to bring a cassette tape, you know, because, like, my son doesn't know what a cassette tape is, and I thought it would be kind of funny. I don't even think he knows what a CD is, actually, believe it or not. Like, all of our music are MP3s, but this thing's got a cassette tape, and, uh, and uh, we used to have one with uh, a track, right? So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was our first singing machine. We had an A-track, you know, singing, if you guys, you know, karaoke. Like, now it's all on TV, so. Yeah, we have, like, lots of teachers, you know what I'm talking about? I actually think that we're kind of like spiritual receivers. I, even, even without Christ, I think we have, that, and sometimes things are fuzzy in our life, you know what I'm talking about? Remember this, Ron? And, like, like, all right, Jesus, where are you at? All right, there we go. Later. And then we're like, oh, well, you know, we have other teachers in our lives, so let's see. Wait, this. Oh, I like this one. Yeah, we gotta stay there for a little bit. Yeah. That's a. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. We're in church. I gotta get back to 91. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Like, it, 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 it hits the mark of what I'm trying to do, you know. There are times when we. When, you know, when, our, when our lives are more like Journey or Boston, and then there's other moments in time when we're like, all right, I'm on the Moody, I'm on the Moody Talk Radio, I'm at Moody Talk Radio right now, and then there's, you tune up and so, there's another little section of life. I actually think that we're very complex spiritual receivers, by the way. I think we're taking input all the time, like all the time. Sometimes we're getting input from people around us. Sometimes we're getting input from spirits. Like, not always those that are after our good, either. Like, they're trying to bring uh, thoughts of condemnation and of, of hurt and of harm and other thoughts that come in. I mean, when you, when you take a look at the news, I'm saying every time I see some of the destructiveness of what's going on, I don't look very far to say, I wonder if the enemy had any sort of hand in what was going on there. Because uh, it looks a lot like what Jesus said, Satan, you're a murderer. You've been a murderer from the beginning and you're trying to kill the Son of God. And he hasn't changed at all. And so he's still doing that kind of stuff. And then we have the Spirit of God that's actually speaking to us as well. Um, he speaks to us through his Word. He speaks to us in living ways. And I'm saying sometimes our lives are like in between. You know, we, we play the game spiritually where we have, you know, we're like right in the middle. You know, we're like, we have Moody on one side and we got... Uh, B96 on the other, you know, and we're trying to, we're trying to reconcile, uh, you know, the sensual dance stuff with uh, holiness. And, and, and we're like, Lord, I'm so confused. What's going on? And, and then there's other times where, just because of our own choices, we're like, I don't want, you know, I just turn, I tune up Moody Bible Institute like in five minutes right before I come to church so that I, you know, get my church on and then put... And, as soon as I'm gone, I'm like, boom, right over. Oh, yeah. <laughs> going on. And that's kind of how we live our life. And uh, that's, that's not grace. That's not, that's not the grace of God as spelled out, at least in the scriptures. Hey, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I got to get there myself. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 
I love this chapter. Kind of a scary chapter. Kind of a lot, a lot of chapters in the scriptures are scary to me. They're also filled with great gems, you know. If we have, I, I always go back to, for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, right? That's what Jesus is always saying all the time. Let let the Spirit speak. So come, Lord, speak to our hearts again. Uh, in First Corinthians chapter two, starting in verse twelve, let's take a look at this. Starting in verse twelve. Actually, I want to start in verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So I'm just saying right now, I don't know any of your thoughts right now. I don't know what's going on. I mean, we got the game coming up. we got other difficulties that are going on in our lives, in our families. Some people have very difficult decisions that they're facing right now and uh, even before they came to church. Some of them didn't even come to church this morning at all because they have these decisions that have to be made. And, and it's like, Lord, what am I going to do? I'm, just, I'm coming to the end of myself and I need some help here. And, and even the scripture says that no one really knows, you don't know me and I don't know you, even within marriage, some of the closest relationships that we have, how many times have your, has your spouse just blown your mind? You're like, I totally thought I knew that person. And then all of a sudden that was like, what? What happened there? And, uh, and so the scriptures say that it's only what's inside of a man that knows them. So no one comprehends the thoughts of God except for the Spirit of God. Now check this out in verse 12. Unlike husbands and wives, although we should be growing in our nakedness without ashamed, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually uh, within marriage. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we might impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. They are foolishness, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. I'm saying... For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. You see this? We have been given the mind of Christ so that we can spiritually appraise things. I can listen to certain channels coming off of my TV or off of the radio and I can spiritually appraise them for the spiritual man. For the foolish man, he cannot. He cannot spiritually appraise them. They cannot see the depth of the joy that is wrapped up in some of the beauty and glory of the vertical praise that goes forth from ancient hymns to modern praise songs that ascribe the greatness of our God. They cannot see it. Neither can the natural man determine the depth of the wickedness of some of the stuff that is being taught in our minds and through culture and through the radio and through TV and through our MP3 players and through iTunes and through the cable that's coming into our house and the Wi-Fi that's flying around. The foolish man cannot spiritually discern the difference between what is right and what is wrong and what is wicked and profane and what is holy and true. And, and 
And what we have in the gospel is not only salvation, but a brand new life and an opportunity to walk into the grace of God and to be instructed by the King of kings and the Lord of lords himself that we might be adequate and equipped for every good work so that we might live a life that in the end is not a wasted life, is not a life that has been spent building up ourselves as deity, but rather the one who is worthy so that in the end the home is not completely destroyed, but one that is given to others. Loving God and loving others. I'm telling you. Not only did God give us his book, he also sent us his spirit so that we can understand spiritual truths. There is a huge deficit of wisdom in this world. In fact, right now, we really are getting to the point where it's like good is evil and evil is good. I'm telling you. We're flipping it around. We're getting to that point where we're flipping it around where we're beginning to say that which is right is wrong and that which is wrong, is right. And if you embrace that, you are to be shunned. And if you don't embrace that, you are a hater, not a lover. And it's like, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? To the world, this is foolishness. The natural man cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God. Jesus, the grace of God, has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Praise the Lord He is all we need. He is all we need. It is not through the memorization of a bunch of lists of this station is bad, this station is good. This movie is bad, this movie is not good. I like to to follow this guy, John Acuff. He he wrote a book called Stuff Christians Like, which is, if you don't like sarcastic humor, stay away from him. But I'm all about sarcasm, so I think it's just as funny as all get out. But he's always kind of poking fun at, at Christian culture. And he's like, you know, he, he talks about how, like, there's certain rated R films that Christians can endure because it's just violence only. But if it's got immorality, it's like, no, no, we can't do that. You know, no immorality. But violence, violence is all right because there's violence in the Bible. Well, there's, a, there's, 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 there's immorality in the Bible, too. Is it? <laughs> So we have this conversation a lot with, like in our youth group. It's always fun to actually you know, stir, stir the pot a little bit around some of these like, gray areas where some people, uh, you know, like, let me just throw this one because I think it came up at, at one day during Advent, but I'm just going to drop the bomb and I'm going to run from it. Ready? Boom. Harry Potter. <laughs> Whoa, watch out. Seriously, that, I mean, that, you can get some people really riled up about that. I'm not trying to get anybody riled up. I'm just saying it's, just, it's one of those areas where it's like evil, you know. Hey, look at it. I don't know if the grace of God is instructing you in that area, Carrie. What do you mean? Yeah. Did you read those books? Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Where, where, do we come, where do we come from? And there's those areas where we need to love one another, actually, because there are some areas that I think I call meat sacrifice to idols areas. That's one of my first things. Like, is that a meat sacrifice to idol area? If I, if I, if I have some friends come over and I put out all my Harry Potter... Uh, paraphernalia and all my books. Come check out my Harry Potter room, you know. Come check the, you know, am I going to hurt them when I do that? And uh, we need to love one another in the middle. By the way, I don't have a Harry Potter room, just so that you know. I did see one, though, on my sister's phone, I think, when we were visiting. It was pretty interesting. All right, so, uh, hey, how is your relationship with God? Um, 
New Year. I have this printed out. I'm going to throw it back there on the thing, but this is actually, and I endorse this, Justin Taylor. He's actually the Gospel Coalition. He's, got a, he's a writer on their blog, and he's got a thing for Bible reading plans for 2013. Just want to encourage you in this if you don't have one. There's like 60 zillion awesome plans out there. Some of you have like iPhones and stuff. You're paying like $120 a month just for your data service and other things and email. Get a Bible reading plan. You know, set it up there so it like harasses you or something like, hey, yo, did you read your Bible this week at all or anything like that? There's some really great plans. One of my favorite ones on here that like helps people that some of you are, you know, you're, you're, you're that type of personality that does really good with um, planners and everything. And so uh, uh, some of you don't do so good with that. One of my favorite plans on here, it's called the Bible reading plan for shirkers and slackers. I totally endorse that one. Uh, it's like a one-page PDF. If you skip like eight months, it's okay. You just pick right up where you're left off. Just check off, you know, shirkers and slackers. Don't let the enemy beat you up about that, by the way. But I will tell you this. If you want to grow in your spiritual walk with Jesus, get to know his word. Like, like in, learn to walk through it. There's so many riches in there. And I don't know any other way of getting to know him uh, you know, get to know his word. There's other, there's other ways that he communicates as well, but be dedicated to the word, all right? Learn, learn to walk in it. Learn to walk in it. You will have your, your senses trained. I, 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 I'm trying to be really careful here that you don't, uh, you know, well, I got a Bible reading plan. God likes me. I'm awesome. And my spiritual walk is amazing. And then there's the other side of the spectrum that's like, dude, I haven't touched my Bible in like two years. And I don't know, I don't even know, what's the first book of the Bible again? Isn't it like, uh, yeah, right. So uh, don't, you know, don't do the extreme. Listen to what he's saying. He'll teach you. Uh, but I, I would encourage you to pick up a Bible reading plan. I mean, on your phone, uh, there's PDF copies. Put it in your Bible. I mean, there's so many different options. The ESV study Bible's got like a million reading plans out there. Uh, there's two-year reading plans, four-year reading plans. Our high school program has a four-year reading plan you know, where you're reading 25% of the Bible. You can actually read through the entire Bible, by the way, in about 12 minutes a day. If you, if you read it every day, you can read through it in a year in about 12 minutes a day. It's really not a huge investment. Uh, it, it's difficult, though, because your spirit and my spirit and the enemy of our souls doesn't want us in the Word, and it becomes very difficult. It's, it's just like exercising. It's hard to do. It's not, it's not an easy task to accomplish, okay? But it's worthwhile in the end because you're building a relationship with the grace of God. All right, back to, back to Titus. What is God's grace instructing us in? All right, this is, the, this is the scary part. This is the hard part. I, I want to preface this in saying that Jesus is not after religious affections with respect to he wants you to do this and not that. This is not Ten Commandment driven. You with me? This instruction is not Ten Commandment driven. When I ask people, what do you think the Ten Commandments are there for? The number one answer, survey says, what show was that again? Survey yeah, Family Feud. Survey says, the number one answer is, it teaches me how to be a good person. And I'm like, dude, even Jesus said, there is no one who is good. And so the law, the law, the Ten Commandments were there to teach us our need of Christ. And so do you think that when the grace of God comes, that he's just going to continue to give us a bunch of rules and regulations that we cannot keep? 
Are you guys with me on that? There's no way he's going to do that. He came to actually fulfill the law, which didn't come with power. So, so what I'm prefacing, what, I'm about to te- what, what this passage is about to teach, what I'm telling you is, is that this grace of God actually comes, and for the believer, comes to dwell inside of the believer, so that what he's about to instruct, he actually calls forth by his grace command in the life of the believer through the Holy Spirit. What I'm about to say is that his instruction comes with power. Where the Old Testament said, don't commit adultery. And as soon as you heard it, you're like, dude, my eyes, my eyes, my eyes are filled with adultery. Or don't covet that stuff. Oh man, now I want it all. That's what Paul said. As soon as I heard the command, I realized how much coveting I had. So now when Jesus says, don't look on another woman lustfully, that that's committing adultery in your heart, and he says, don't do that in instruction, what he's really saying is, don't do it, and I'm going to give you the power to not do it, so that you're going to love me, and you're going to love that woman. You're going to love me, and you're going to love that woman. You with me? In other words, in the Old Testament, the command didn't come with power. In the New Covenant, because of the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, It does come with power. So don't take these instructions and make a list out of them like a Ten Commandments. He's calling forth the Spirit of God in the life of his children, all right? So let's look at what he does. All right, the first thing is denying ungodliness and worldly desires. So the grace of God appears, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. This word deny here, it denotes a conscience and purposeful action and it's birthed out of the fact that the Son of God is alive within me. I'm telling you. I used to love to watch Steven Seagal movies when I was like in the 80s. I was telling, in fact, I was just mentioning this because we were watching Batman, the new Batman movie. Not that I'm endorsing that at all. Although he does sound like strong bad. Uh, Bane does. <laughs> you got that on video? All right, I'm, I'm recording. All right. <laughs> so we... Uh, you know, he's getting, the, the good guy is getting beat up. Steven Seagal never got beat up. That's what I liked about the guy. He never had to get beat up to win. It was just like, he walked into a room, and we used to just go there just to count, like, how many people he would damage, you know? And we're like, all right, one, two, three, four, five. He never got beat up. That's what we liked about him. And uh, the, the reality, and I remember there was a season of time when I'm like, I'm going to go, you know, had to go to, had to go to the video store to get the VHS tape to rent it popped it in after my relationship with Jesus and I'm sitting here watching this and all of a sudden I'm like, oh my goodness, this, something significantly changed inside of me. And what used to be entertainment to me now ended up grieving me. And I was like, whoa, that's just wrong. I used to love that. And now when I look at it, I see hurt and pain. And not just the hurt and pain of the acting going on, but of, of the, the desire for us to build entertainment around the destruction of humanity. And, and now I'm like, man, that's grievous. And I'm saying that, that there was something internally. Now, I will say that I think I can say, I can say to that, to, I can say to the grace of God, I'm not interested in that. I still want to pursue my love for violence in this area. I st- and, and I want to nurture it. I want to build it up. 
And I think there's things that we can do to do that. I think there's certain entertainment things that we can do, that we fill our minds with this stuff through video games and through movies and through books and through other things. And that's just one aspect, because then there's the immorality as well. And there's things that we do with immorality. Actually, by the way, and I'm talking about sexual immorality now, all of this stuff gets down to some things that are immoral. And, and what, what the Scripture says is that Jesus has come to instruct us to deny this stuff that our heart says we love. Our heart says, I love adultery. And Jesus says, no, you don't. And I say, yes, I do. And you have the battle going on and the flesh and the spirit wage war internally. I'm telling you, becoming a Christian is hard work. It's not easy. In fact, before I was a believer, my life was, I think, a whole lot easier. Because now I got, like, spiritual schizophrenia happening. I'm serious, it happens internally. It's like warfare going on internal. And it's like, all right, Lord, I hear what you're saying. And there are times when I'm like, okay, I just, I'm not going to listen to you. And he's like, yes, yes, you will. And I'm like, no, I won't. Well, okay, I'll be patient over there. And I said, okay, I'm going to And then, you know, then the repentance later on becomes much more severe. And he doesn't beat me. He doesn't, you know, it's not like it's, but it's, it's sufficient enough to bring correction and reproof in a loving way that, that has at its heart and goal the manifestation of the life of the Son of God through me, eventually, more and more. And, and, and I get that wrong a lot, but that's the gospel. God says in the book of Romans that it's because of ungodliness that his wrath will be revealed from heaven in one day. Ungodliness is a true lack of reverence and devotion for God. Not any God, but the only true God. There is a lack of reverence, honor, or respect a profound adoring awe for the Lord in the world due to sin. I'm telling you, even within the church, we don't have this awe sometimes. And it does not direct, it has an impact on the choices that we make with our lives, with what we're doing. Am I going to honor God or am I going to honor myself? Am I going to honor the person next to me and put them above Christ. Because that's what we do. That's what we do. All of our decisions ultimately become pleasure-driven decisions, I'm telling you. And they're all core-related to relationships. Every decision that we make is related, if you, if you get down to the core of the decision that we're making, has its root in a relationship with someone and uh, and, and, and our desire to please that individual. Do you know who that individual is most of the time? It's us. Most of the time, it's us. Number one idol. Number one. Number one idol. But other times, our relationship with the Lord wanes and our relationship with others grow. And out of our desire to please those around us, out of that desire, we begin to embrace ungodliness and worldly ways that are contrary to the teaching and instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ in this book. And we embrace them because of our pleasure with our horizontal relationship above our vertical relationship. And you don't know what you're doing, that you're not loving that person when you're doing it. You're not loving them. 
You're harming them when you do that. And you're harming your relationship with the one who redeemed you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the absence of that awe and fear leads you down the road of naturalistic understanding where you begin to embrace wrong and then promote it as right. And you go against the teaching of the Savior that laid down his life for you and me to do. There's only two answers to that. If you can do that without discipline, you have not been redeemed. If you can do that habitually, without discipline, you do not know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without discipline. Or, you will suffer His loving, corrective embrace which sometimes can be very severe. I am not going to lie to you. He can be very loving and very severe at the same time. And it can be hard. And in the end, when it comes, you will praise Him. You will praise Him when He empties your hands of those idols. Even though it costs you your hand you will praise him in the end. Jesus comes to instruct us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Worldly desires are sinful passions that war against our born-again spiritual nature that God has given us. In Galatians, here's a little list. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, Outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, greed, pride, hatred, and unforgiveness. Listen, you cannot follow Jesus and endorse drunkenness. You cannot. Drunkenness is actually a type of spiritual filling. The Holy Spirit himself teaches that drunkenness is actually the antithesis of what it looks like to be spiritually filled. So when you're endorsing drunkenness, what you're really endorsing is a demonic manifestation, which is a replica, a false replica, of what it means to really live in a spirit-filled life. Listen, I am not saying that we that we break off our relationships for people that wrestle with alcohol. And for some of us, we need to be involved in their lives so that they can come to really get drunk on the true vine, which is Christ. We need to be invested in that. Now, I'm not saying some of you might have an opportunity to, to manifest, but even so, even if you're in the middle of a of a if you can sustain righteousness and holiness in the middle of a party like that, in the middle of the bar or wherever it is that you manifest it, you should still look different. You should not be smelling like the world if you're spirit-filled. 
you should love differently than what the world loves. Even though it might look similar, we love the true drink and the true bread and the true vine. Sinful passions that war against the born-again spiritual nature that God has given us in Christ. Christ can instruct us to deny these things since the power of sin has been broken in the lives of his disciples. We have been forgiven and raised with him in power. We're free to live by faith in the one who loved us and gave himself for us. He's instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Sensualities. This world is filled with immorality in the United States. I got immorality flying around my house through the internet. It's incredible. Just inviting it in. I've often thought, maybe I just need to cut the whole vine off and then we carry it around with us in our pockets. And you know, it's so crazy because it's like a, it could be a secret, destructive uh, um, sin, adultery in our lives having incredible lasting effects. And by the way, you give, you give the devil a foot place in that one area, Ephesians chapter 4, he'll explode in your life in other areas. You give him something like adultery or lust in one area, and then you wonder why you're having issues with anger, unforgiveness, bitterness, drunkenness in other areas. And when you get back to the root of it, it could just be this one other area. Because we give the devil a, foot, a foothold in that one area. So the grace of God has come teaching us. And then he says, so he tells us to deny this stuff, but then embrace this stuff. Embrace a sound mind, sensibly, living sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age. A sober mind, having the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. True wisdom and seeing God. True wisdom is seeing things from God's perspective. Seeing things soberly. We're no longer, I love this because Ron always brings this up, Ron Pfeiffer, always brings the scripture passage up. He like sings, I think the Spirit of God, brother, sings this verse from your life into the church and has for years. First, 2 Corinthians 4.18, we are no longer looking at the temporal, but we are seeing things from an eternal perspective. Like if we can't get beyond worldly and lust and and, and and outright, clearly uh, false loves, how are we ever going to get to the point where we're actually burdened for people on the other side of the world that don't know Jesus, that are caught up in religious systems that are going to kill them eternally? We're playing with poo. We're playing with it. And we think it's fun. And we don't even realize we stink. And on top of that, we're mi- in the end, we're missing out on the greater glory of giving our love to others, not just in our families, but to the whole world. Missions. We're on a mission. We're not our own. That we should live soberly. That we should live righteously. I'm not talking about positional righteousness. This is the righteousness, righteousness I long for, righteousness I need. I want to live right for the Lord. Not because I know a bunch of rules, but because His Spirit has manifested itself in me. Uh, in, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, it says that we should do all things to the glory of God. I, I'll never forget, we, we read a devotional some years ago, can you drink orange juice and sin? And the answer is yes, if you don't do it to the glory of God. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. To live godly, a reflection of God's grace flowing through our lives. God is in the process of replicating his son's image in us. John uh, the Baptist said, He, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. Paul put it this way, It is no longer I who live, for I have died and my life has is hidden in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives within me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The grace of God is instructing us today to live soberly, righteously, and godly because we have been raised with him in the newness of life. The difficulty is, and here's, here's what the grace of God is teaching us, denying ungodliness and worldly desires, or embracing living soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. He's teaching both of those things. And, and we fall out in a spectrum in there somewhere. And doesn't every religion teach this at some level? Every time we sin, we say that the glory of God is not our supreme treasure. Every time we choose sin, we are saying, and by the way, that includes things that we leave out. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where James says, to him who knows the right thing to do and yet does not do it, to him it is sin. It's not just what we don't do. I mean, it's not just what we do. It's what we don't do. It's, it's, it's a life. And Jesus has come to give us his life so that we can begin to honor God. Every time we sin, we say that the glory of God is not the supreme treasure to be desired above everything else. That is why when we make decisions as believers out of our, out of our love relationship for people horizontally that are ungodly, we are not loving them. You understand? Because when you make that decision, what you're saying is, God is not worthy above all to be honored. Thus, you are not proclaiming the greatness of God in their life. You are actually becoming an agent of blocking the glory of God from them being able to see it when we make those sorts of decisions. When we say, every time we sin, we say that the glory of God is not the supreme treasure to be desired above all others. It is not satisfying These other things are more satisfying, thus I choose them above God. That's what we're doing. The greatest news in the world is that the death of Christ, in the death of Christ, God has made a way for his name to be exalted and for my sins to be forgiven in the same act. God is both just and the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus and and make me into a new creation with brand new desires. Now listen, you and I, there's still some cultivation that needs to take place, both by you and by the Lord. We need to listen to him. We can become like Martha. We can go through seasons of time when we get so busy with the, with the challenges of this world. I have this ailment. I have this family problem. I have this other thing going on over here. I have these this financial issue here and this job situation here, and before we know it, we're walking for weeks and we're not sitting at his feet like Mary. And before we know it, our life is, is exploding in little eruptions. They start as small and then eventually get larger of ungodliness. 
in certain areas. We don't even realize that it's happening. It's backsliding that's going on. And he's saying, come back. Come back. Jesus is teaching that if you find your ultimate joy in these earthly treasures, you will be disappointed in the end. But if you find your ultimate joy in him, you will never be disappointed. And as he fills your life and my life, that transformation will bring about his honor and glory and actually, believe it or not, will result in what we're really after anyways, our joy. It results in our joy. It's so difficult because the enemy in the world has it twisted around. You'll be happy if you do this. No, you won't. Yes, I will. No, you won't. Yes, I will. Oh, okay, well, go, go do it. Okay. Were you happy? No. No. In the gospel, Jesus offers himself as the all-satisfying beauty and greatness and wisdom and strength and love. When we begin to live out the greatest commandment in our lives, our lives will begin to orbit the greatest beauty, the greatest pleasure, the greatest joy, and all of those other relationships and things will take their appropriate place. Adultery will not manifest itself as the sun because Jesus is the sun. Okay? Anger will not manifest itself as the orbiting center of my universe. Jesus will be the orbiting center of my universe. And anger will take its rightful place underneath his feet. Death will not manifest its fear and control over me. Christ will be the center, not death, not aging, not financial issues, not wayward children, not my arrogant, religious, prideful ways. They will all come into subjection underneath the centrality of his burning, furious, glorious beauty. And he will sustain you and I till the very end, at which time his glory will truly be revealed and we will worship him in spirit and in truth like never before. I don't have time to finish the passage. Uh, I'd say read it because it talks about the fact that one of the reasons why we do this is he's coming back. I don't want to scare people. You know what I'm talking about? Like, what good does that do? You know what I'm saying? Like, if you don't become a Christian, then Jesus is going to come back and destroy He is going to do that. And there's going to be a lot of people that are going to die when he returns. In fact, the, the Bible teaches that in one valley, the blood of humanity will, will rise up to the bridles on, uh, on horses when he comes to slay those who have uh, not received the gospel. We need to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. We need to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. The way that we do this is we relate with him through the gospel. It's his life in us that enables us to love God and to love our fellow man and to live a life that is not wasted in trivialities or expending our, our, all of our energies and money and resources on ourselves and in the end, all we have is brokenness. We're building something. Jesus is building something. He's building his church. He's doing it through you and me. Let's pray.
Father, we give you thanks. And we ask that you would give us the grace that we need to live for you, to live the gospel, to live soberly, righteously, and godly. Help us to overcome where, where we need to overcome. Thank you for the way that you humble us when we need to be humbled. Thank you for um, your grace that is always there, offering forgiveness time and time and time again. Lord, we, our heart's desire, though, is for Jesus to be manifested in our lives change our desires, change our appetites where they need to be changed, Lord. Become central where you need to be central. We're at the beginning of a new year. This is an opportunity, Lord, once again, at least emotionally, to call out to you and say, we need you more than ever. The world is still here. It didn't end two weeks ago. We know that, it's, that you're going to come back even before that happens. We don't want to live lives of shame. We want to live boldly for you and for a kingdom that will never end when all others fail and turn to dust, yours will remain. You are our king and we worship you this morning. Come and be glorified not only this day but every day until that day when we see you face to face. Either when we lay down this earthly vessel or you return and we meet you in the air. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.